Welcome back to another episode of One Penny at a Time. Harris Elliott here. Welcome to another great episode of our podcast and having another incredible guest that we get to have great conversation about their journey and through dividends. Um, to everybody out there, I hope everybody has had their pulse check and have gotten their IV bag after how bad the market's been the last couple of days. But let's let's brighten up that mood here with some great conversation. I have a fellow amazing member of the DivTwit community. We have Life with Dividends here today. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Harris. Thank you so much for having me on the on the pod. And before I even get started, I wanted to let you know what an amazing job you are doing with your podcast. I've been pretty much following it from day zero, episode zero. And it's so nice to have fresh content creators come up and share their investing journeys. There's always something to learn from from everybody in our community. So I really appreciate what you're doing here. No, uh, first, and thank you so much for you know, joining me and getting to talk some some stocks here for a good amount of time. And, and I appreciate you've been listening to the podcast from day one. It's, I actually never forget. I think this is maybe like a couple weeks after I joined Twitter to promote the podcast and doing the podcast. You had followed me and then you had sent me a message explaining how like how you were actually very excited to see how I incorporated my wife into the project. And then you actually related a an episode from PPC Ian where he had his wife do an episode about Target. And that was a pretty good relation because Ian, for me, was one of the main people to help me get into this whole side of the world. So I appreciate you've been listening to day one and thank you so much for the compliment. That means a lot to me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I got hooked on to your podcast when you mentioned that she, your wife designed the logo for, for your, for your podcast. And that was like, wow, that's pretty interesting because usually all of us investors kind of go solo in our investing journeys and don't really talk about our spouses a whole lot. And that's kind of unfortunate because they play an important part in whatever we do. Um, and I, you know, I kind of related to that a little bit. And that's why I just pinged you immediately. So it, it was great, right? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I've always, I've said this in a couple episodes, if it wasn't for my wife's design and creative mind, I would have the crappiest album cover or artwork for this podcast so i credit her with her creativity every single day that i have the opportunity she helped me making this look so much better <laughs> good deal good deal so i definitely want to get to learn a lot about you um one of the main things that maybe want to get you on the podcast is one um listening to your dividend talk episode with those guys over there who are doing an amazing job over there for the for that european flavor the conversation you had with them was one of a kind. It's like, I really would love to have an hour with you in a room. And I think with you as well, I know you've been a dividend investor for quite some time. So I'd like to get to learn your story. Oh, absolutely. So in terms of my background, where I come from, just for your listeners who haven't listened to the Dividend Talk uh, a podcast episode. So I am a software engineer working for one of the big tech companies here in Austin, in, in Texas. Uh, in my mid to late 30s and uh, in my spare time, I blog on dividend growth and value investing and in general, anything to do with personal finance and, and those topics. Uh, 
And I kind of began investing around the 2012 timeframe. And this was mostly passive in the sense, you know, I was just investing through my employer's 401k and kind of, you know, making sure that I get my match and not really, you know, being looking into investing beyond that, right? It was just mostly setting my retirement up and not really thinking about it from, you know, from, from, a, from a, uh, not really thinking about it a lot more from beyond that. But all of that changed around 2017, 2018 timeframe where we went through layoffs in uh, the semiconductor industry, which is where I belong from. And that was very disruptive to me and my family. And I wanted to ensure that apart from my regular nine to five income, I have a supplemental source of passive income as a fallback in case something would have happened to my primary job. Um, and that's where I started looking at passive income, side gigs. There was nothing that kind of fit the bill as good as dividend growth investing. And I've been hooked on to dividend growth investing since about 2020-ish, which is when I started my blog around pretty much around the same time, 2020, 2021. And it's, it's just been you know, going through that journey um, ever since then. No, that's that's awesome. And, you know, uh, I, feel, I feel like a lot of us, I mean, I won't say everybody because there's different levels. I feel like a lot of us, 2020 was a very big change for everybody. And of course, with the events that happen in the world, for me, like 2020 was very instrumental, not in an investing standpoint, but prior to 2020, I'm going to be the first one to admit that I was very bad at budgeting and I lived for the moment and not for the future. When 2020 happened, it changed my perspective of how I needed to really set myself up for the future and really, and then that's how I ended up finding PPCE through YouTube. And then I went down the rabbit hole. And so I definitely get that. And it's amazing how, you know, a negative event that happened in your personal life ended up turning into a big positive where now, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your career, but now you have this whole other side of, you know, generating the future for your family. But also I know this is probably more than a hobby to you. It's, you know, it's kind of part of your everyday, I'm assuming, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, getting control of your finances can be liberating in so many different aspects. You now don't have the, added stress of, oh, what if I lose my job? What if there's another layoff? Or what am I going to do to put the bread on the table at the end of the day? Um, it, you know, it, it gives you options to kind of control your life and your time. And uh, there's this great book, um, and it came up in your last episode with uh, Dividend Dynasty, Psychology of Money uh, by yes. Morgan Housel. Uh, he talks a lot about the fundamental reason for investing is not really to beat the market or, you know, to, to, to become a multimillionaire or anything like that. It's just mostly getting to a point where you can, you can have control of your own time. And he defines that as financial independence. Look to a lot, to, to a lot of people, financial independence could be sipping martini on a beach or whatnot. Right. But, Another way of looking at it is 
if I can get to a point where I have the FU money, right, and I can just liberate myself from my nine to five job, that's another way of looking at financial independence. So I subscribe to that philosophy a lot more. And I think dividend growth investing is one way of achieving it. It's not the only way. There are other investing strategies to, to achieve that. But this is something that resonates with me. No, absolutely. And I actually, I have the book right here next to my desk. Um, I haven't started reading yet. I'm finishing the other book I bought, which was about from Dividend John. I'm finishing, I should be done with that book tonight. Then I'm going to start the psychology of money. From what I've heard from multiple people, they've rated this book really highly. So I'm excited to get to read that and you know sit down and see what this book's all about. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend this book. Morgan also maintains a blog um, and he's also active on Twitter as well. So if nothing, um, you know, I would recommend your listeners and yourself to also look at his blog because he approaches investing from a very um, layman perspective. He's not into numbers and all that, even though he comes from a financial background. Uh, mm -hmm. He is mostly for the average Joe. And, you know, he motivates you to kind of look at investing in a, in a, in a mindset where you can liberate yourself from the daily rat race. No, absolutely agree. So uh, life with dividends. I wanted to ask you a couple questions here, obviously, based off, you know, you're big on dividend, the growth investing. So you said around 2017, 2018 is when you started getting into it, aside from obviously retirement accounts and all that. What were some of the first stocks that you started doing deep dives or researching or which companies did you fall in love with and started investing with right away? That's a great question because I looked through and in my research, there, there was a lot of fundamentals that I was lacking on in terms of how do I analyze businesses? How do I read financial statements? How do I judge management quality and all that? So I was starting from a point where I wasn't sure of a lot of things. And I think... I read a book called Pete, uh, One Upon Wall Street by Peter Lynch. And this is one other book that I would recommend to your, to your listeners as something that's very approachable and very readable for even a layman because Peter Lynch, a successful fund manager, um, approaches this from a standpoint of if you want to start investing, you can actually start investing in names that are that you encounter in your daily life. Um, that would be, you know, common consumer products that you use, uh, like open up your kitchen shelf and look at medical products from Johnson & Johnson, for example, or that post-it note that, you know, you're using from 3M. Uh, by the way, these are not stock recommendations and I encourage you to do your due let's, diligence. Let's put that disclaimer out there right <laughs> away. Disclaimer. We're not... In... <laughs> right? Because no, uh, yes. I, I, I'm very careful about suggesting 3M in particular here because they are going through rough times. But the, but the point really is that you already have some knowledge with you as a consumer um, that you can leverage to kind of understand and study businesses. And I... Uh, that resonated pretty strongly with me because I know what a Johnson & Johnson 
uh, Tylenol looks like, and I know, um, you know, what a 3M post-it looks like. You don't need not to be a rocket scientist to understand that. It's pretty simple, pretty easy to understand. Um, so those were the kind of businesses that I invested in, classic blue chip companies, P, uh, Procter & Gamble, 3M, Johnson & Johnson, um, were kind of like the bedrock of my portfolio. Um, and then I used that as a starting point to kind of study other businesses and look for similar broad patterns, which I can analyze businesses using my knowledge from what I've, you know, what I gained from Johnson and Johnson or, or Procter and Gamble. Yeah. Um, it's always, a, it's always funny. Um, um, I, I talk with Russ from Dapper Dividends pretty frequently, and we always have the joke, how many Procter & Gamble products can you find in the cupboard of your kitchen or in the cupboard of your bathroom cabinet? So you, you have the right mindset there. And that's how I take the approach with my portfolio as far as with the singular, the singular stocks, obviously. Um, for me, the number one rule that I have in my portfolio is do I use the product and do I understand what this product, what this company does? If I can't answer that, I will not move forward with it. Unless if it's had some exposure to an ETF, then that's fine because I'm a little bit more risk averse. But most of my portfolio is literally things that I use, things that I know, and I just invest in what I use in every day. And I, that's just been my approach at least far as so far into my investing journey. That's fantastic. That's exactly you know what Peter Lynch suggested as well. And that's a very good way of starting, right? Use uh, ETFs for for collection of stocks or businesses that you're not familiar with and only focus on individual stocks for businesses that, that you are familiar with. I mean, familiarity doesn't always equate to expertise, but familiarity is a good starting point uh, where you have no stats, you know, no good uh, background. Absolutely. And I know I want to bring this up in conversation. I've never really talked a lot about this, uh, about this particular holding. The reason why I didn't, invest in a singular holding is because I have really good exposure through it through like SCHD, VU, VOO. And I, I forget, there's another ETF I had. I can't remember which one it was, but Home Depot. Obviously, I think we all know the orange bucket. I have two of them in my garage right now, but you know, all the amazing <laughs> products that they have, but I know you're big on Home Depot. So I love to learn what was like your thesis on Home Depot. And I know what got you to be so heavily involved with that company. It started off being, you know, some something similar to Johnson & Johnson, where every single week as a homeowner, for one reason or the other, I would find myself in Home Depot shopping for something or the other, right? Oh, the, there's that, you know, that project that needs attention and I'm missing, you know, some part that needs uh, attention. So I had to go make a run to Home Depot to, you know, to go purchase that part because, if I don't do that, then my project is going to be left stranded and I can't get to that for the next two weeks or so. So if I'm doing that, I see a similar pattern with several other homeowners doing that. And there, there is, you know, some kind of a mode there, right? There's, there's, some, there's some kind of a, a consumer uh, mode that, that the company has. Um, Lowe's is another example, right? Where, uh, between Home Depot and Lowe's, they have kind of a duopoly, but there are other players as well. So it's, it's kind of a fragmented industry as well as home improvement 
is concerned. Home Depot has a very interesting history. Um, if you actually look at the company's timeline, it's uh, it started off like a traditional retailer where you know the, the founders started building up the the business by opening up more stores. The first store was I think in Atlanta, if I if I remember correctly. But they have since grown to about two thousand ish stores uh, by about uh, year two thousand. Uh, but if you look at the last 10 to 12 years, they have decided that they no longer want to grow the number of stores. So the store counts are pretty much flat. But what they have instead focused on is how do we use our existing stores and our distribution centers to kind of de-risk ourselves from players like Amazon or somebody else coming in? Um because we want to maintain our mode and we don't want some other player coming in and disrupting our business. So management has taken a pretty uh, directed approach to improving or actually leveraging their existing stores to be operationally more efficient. So you're looking at operational profits or operational margins um, in the range of around 15% or so, uh, focus more on one category of uh, their customers, which is the pro customers, uh, i.e. the contractors um, who have to come in and buy bulk items, you know, for their projects to get uh, get completed. Um, and this is where, you know, they, they've kind of built up a moat in such a way that it's very difficult for some other player to come in and disrupt their business because, Pros come in and they want to ensure that the quality of inventory that they're buying um, is is of good quality, and um, they they can't compromise on that because their um, their revenues are kind of tied to that. Um, as a consumer or as a regular customer, a non-pro customer, I want to make sure that when I go into a Home Depot store, I get my part right away because you know if I don't if my project gets derailed, then that's two two weeks or more where my project um, doesn't doesn't actually well it's actually stranded right I, I have to kind of, of put it on the side and um, um, so it, inventory backlog and maintaining a good inventory count is pretty important for a business like Home Depot, whereas inventory turnover is not as critical for a traditional retailer like let's say. Target or Walmart. Um, mm-hmm. um, so there are interesting dynamics with that business. Um, where it's going to go from this point out, out is a little bit of an interesting challenge because um, you don't know what the housing market is going to behave like uh, in the coming few years. Um, can Home Depot sustain their existing operational margins, operating margins, um, and not get away with not growing their store count. That's another question for the management. And these are, uh, you know, interesting uh, factors that you would want to consider as an investor when you're deploying capital into into this investment. But from a dividend growth standpoint, um, it's one of the champion dividend growth stocks, right? It's one of the darlings of the dividend growth community uh, investor community. 
Um, the five-year five CAGR on Home Depot has been incredible. And the, the share price five years has been amazing. And I know you can elaborate on that, but I know what both of those metrics for dividend growth has been really good. Right, right. And if you actually look at things like, well, their free cash flow has kind of dropped this uh, in this recent financial year uh, because they, like I said, inventory, having inventory is, is pretty important. So they have uh, consciously uh, invested their CapEx and ensured that inventories are kind of built up so that they don't have to spend on that anymore. But that's decreased their free, free cash flow. Is that a trend that's going to continue on? Um, is something to be to be seen. Uh, Lowe's is a little different in that regard. I know you're investing in Lowe's, which is also a fantastic yes. dividend st- uh, growth stock. Uh, their um, business dynamics are a little different. They don't serve pros, the pro customers as much. Uh, in fact, if you look at their sales penetration, DIY, sem- DIY. DIY is about 75%. Uh, pros are 25%, whereas Home Depot is more 50-50, like 50% uh, DIYs and 50% pros. So it's interesting, right? I mean, you, you think about it from, oh, they're both home improvement stores, but very different ways of doing businesses. And there's Absolutely. nothing right or wrong here. It's just which, you know, which suits your taste uh, as an investor. No, absolutely. And here's a, two fun facts about it. Um, my dad actually does do contracting on like on the side back home. Um, he is pretty much uh, Home Depot's number one. Um, there's been years with by himself. He has spent $30,000 in one year. That's just him. Imagine how many other people like my father are out there doing these kind of purchases at Home Depot. So that's just one thing I wanted to throw out there. Second fun fact is I think... I don't, I think Home Depot IPO'd in either 81 or 82. I can't remember the year off the top of my head. But if you would have invested $1,000 into Home Depot the day it IPO'd and never touched it ever again and let the growth and the dividends hit, you'd have, I think, $12 million today. So that's today's fun fact. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, that just goes to show how how much of a resilient business this is. And mind you, uh, Home Depot has gone through its own shares of management problems and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, around about uh, 2000 to 2007, there was a change in management. And the manager at that time, I think it was Bob Nadelli or somebody who was a ex-General uh, Electric um, exec, uh, decided to do away with the company's ethos and say, you know what, I'm just going to mo- focus more on cost cutting and all that. And Home Depot actually lost market share to Lowe's at, you know, for those five to six years or whatnot. And um, they have since transformed and gone back to their roots, if you will, um, around about the 2012-ish timeframe uh, uh, coming out of the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis, um, and kind of reinvigorated themselves in some sense, you know, where they, they went back to their roots, they said, no, we don't want to focus on purely cost cutting. We want to actually also ensure that our pro customers get the right kind of help from uh, associates and all that. So a business um, goes through its own ups and downs. um, And you've got to ensure as an investor that you don't get uh, this uh, heartened when 
a company goes through its rough times um, and hold, hold where, where you can because the cyclicality of the market always plays out and eventually good businesses come through. Agreed. And I think we've all, I think we've talked about this before where you can have the best business ever, but if the management is not up to par, it's a toss up of whether the stock is going to perform how you're expecting it to. So management is very key in all these industries because we've seen, I mean, you're in semiconductor. I mean, I'm sure obviously I think everybody's Intel'd out, so I'm not going to go too deep into Intel. Everybody's <laughs> sick of hearing about Intel, but obviously management there has been in question and, you know, Intel has not been performing up there. So I want to ask you this. Um, I'm not going to ask about specific businesses, but I want to ask you specifically about what does, how important is semiconductors for the, uh, for the world's future? And where do you, how do you see that expanding across everything? Wow. Um, where do I begin? Uh, semiconductors. Um, so think of the top technologies or the, you know, uh, well, think five to 10 years down the line and think of the next big breakthroughs in technologies. Um, you're thinking about AI. You're thinking about self-driving cars. You're thinking about, you know, all these disruptive technologies can you imagine any of those without a good semiconductor industry? Um, is one way one one question that you would like to ponder. Let's take self-driving cars for instance, right? The, even even if they were not self-driving, even a regular automobile involves so much of uh, you know semiconductors uh, in terms of the sensors that it interacts with, you know. Uh, tire pressure, temperatures, humidity control, um, whatnot. And if you throw self-driving in the mix, you know, any... Everything at this point. Practically everything, right? I mean, so that's one. AI, uh, can you imagine AIs with, uh, without data centers? And data centers require good networking chips, good uh, GPUs or good CPU, GPU complexes. I mean, I say CPUs, I mean, you know, general processes, right? Or GPUs are graphics, graphics, uh, graphics cards and graphic processing units. So players like NVIDIA or AMD. Um, uh, yeah, so every single um, device that you, uh, that you interact with, even your phone or your laptops or, you know, your... Uh, AirPods or whatnot, you know, your smart lights, your smart home, um, they are all uh, tied to some semiconductor chip or some, um, you know, technology that's related to the semiconductor industry. Uh, so it's very, very hard to actually imagine um, any disruption in technology happening without semiconductors being involved is well, uh, the simplest way that I can put it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it, it, sometimes you just don't i guess for me like obviously i'm not a big tech guy but you, you don't realize how how many things require this and makes you deep thought i know yourself if i'm not mistaken you are an investor into texas instruments is that correct that's correct awesome um um so essentially you think that the next 10 years is probably right now obviously 
a lot. Uh, obviously, Intel is building more plants in the U.S. I think Taiwan Semi is also trying to build some out in the U.S. So right now, I feel like with the the expansive need and everything, and obviously, I know that. 2020 happened. There was so much backlog and demand for these. You feel like this is definitely going to be an industry to keep an eye on for at least the next de- the next decade, you'd say? Absolutely. I mean, the whole dynamics with uh, TSM and the geopolitical tensions with US and China is one way of looking at it. We don't know manufacturing and how manufacturing is going to be impacted because of that. Um, if you look at I already spoke about the technology aspect of it and why semiconductors are important from that standpoint. But if you look at the manufacturing side of things, you do uh, see a trend or actually a impetus from the U.S. government with the CHIPS Act and all that, where they try, they want to try and bring manufacturing back uh, into the country. Um, and why is that? Because they do realize that uh, if they don't have um, the supply chain issues sorted out, and if you have eventuality where you know China uh, invades Taiwan and TSM is thrown out of the mix, what then, right? How do these semiconductor mm-hmm. chips function because it, their manufacturing is kind of disrupted? Um, so in that light, uh, it's it's pretty important to actually look at what Intel is doing. I know a lot of people are, um, you know going bonkers on Intel, and rightly so, you know, it's it's not, it's a hated stop right now. But if you take a step back and kind of see what is the management really doing in this regard, they are spending on foundries and trying and bringing this manufacturing back in-house, right, or be more control of, uh, uh, of, their, of, of their own manufacturing. So in, in some sense, from a business standpoint, you have to commend management that they have realized that this is indeed the right thing to do. Um, so, and we, um, I think we all agree on that because um, you you know that as much as a high yielding stock can get exciting, you know, then back of our mind, it's like I'm going to make a joke with you. Whenever uh, back on dividend talk, you had you have the BS radar. It's like what <laughs> BS radar is coming here, and. You know, they had to do it. I think we all know. I think for me, this, the, the the amount of the cut was a little bit surprising. I thought it was going to be a little bit less, but it's needed and I support it. But obviously there are, in, there might be people who might've invested for the high yield. And obviously if that's why you invested in it, you're going to get burned. Yeah, totally, totally get that. I mean, I, for one, wasn't surprised with the, um, the extent of the dividend cut, right? Uh, 65%, 66%-ish did not surprise me because if I looked at their free cash flow numbers and looked at what uh, Pat Gelsinger was uh, saying in terms of the projected free cash flow, there was just no way that they could maintain that dividend and ensure uh, their upfront plans about, um, you know, covering all that CapEx, right? All that uh, that expenditure. and um, if they hadn't cut the dividend, I would have been really, really pissed off at them <laughs> because um, so it's, 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 a, it's an unpopular opinion because uh, that would if they hadn't cut the dividend, then it would give me a sure tell a sure sign that management has a, a, absolutely no clue what they're doing. Right. 
they've agreed, gone on agreed, and agreed, agreed. Cut, yeah, cut, cut the uh, salaries of all their employees and even their top execs and all that. Imagine being an employee and not cutting the dividend and having your paycheck being docked. Imagine how, um, from a motivational standpoint, how that would feel like as an employee. Uh, so that's that's another way of looking at it too, right? They also did a dock on the 401k match temporarily too. So it's like, if I was working for a company, it's like, why am I getting punished for this? And they're not, it, it's, it is going to create that, you know, that anger against your employer. And then either you can, uh, what's the term that they use now where you semi quit? I forget what the exact term of it is where you, you're silent quit, silent quitting. Silent and then, quit. you know, yeah. how is this going to, how is this going to impact the business even more than it's already impacted? So I agree that, it you know everything that they're doing i mean they're trying to save as much money as they can to really put this into place what i just hope for is that they get this right i really hope they get this right yeah and well yeah it remains to be seen i mean this is a long term turnaround story uh yep. we're looking at 2024 or 2025 and we'll you know really get to know whether you know, our faith in Pat and his team has really good is really going to pay off. Um, but again, the stress on the quality of the management. Uh, you know, why did Intel get into this situation? It was mostly because uh, you know Pat's predecessor Bob Swan and uh, and his uh, exec team were just sitting on their butts, right? They were not doing anything. They were just, um, you know, singing their past laurels and they just basically let uh, NVIDIA and AMD steal market share uh, uh, from under their, uh, you know, under their feet. And to to correct such a mistake in this industry is not an easy task. And if you throw in, unfortunately for Intel, they, they have this pandemic and the recession and all that. It was a hard enough task to deal with, even without all of this. Now that they have thrown into this uh, mess, it's just <laughs> they have their task cut out, right? Absolutely. And then also, I think one big thing with Intel is, I know Apple was a big customer for theirs. And then when Apple went to the M2 and the M1 chips, that was a big hit for them. Uh, absolutely, yes. And there again, you know, um, is this uh, a story that's that's new in the sense we've also seen something similar happen with Apple and Qualcomm or you know Apple doing this to other suppliers as well. So you can't mm-hmm. sit on your butt in this industry and just assume that things are going to be always at status quo and you know you're always going to have your suppliers or your customers as your permanent customers. Things evolve, right? Um, and Apple, Things at some point evolved. or the other, always would want to bring in that technology back in house because that's their business model. They want to be having a walled ecosystem where they control the hardware and software. So, Apple ecosystem if, is everything. It's everything, right? And once you're in that ecosystem, there's no going out. And it's good in some sense uh, from an from their business standpoint. Probably not so great from a customer standpoint. But who cares, right? That's their business model. And if Intel did not see this, or Intel or Bob Swan didn't see this, then they did a huge disservice to their shareholders. 
absolutely there. All right. So it's funny. I said we weren't going to talk about Intel. It ended up being Intel, but you know what, though? It's, it's, I think it's important that we bring this up because you met, you, you said the key thing earlier when we talked about Home Depot management and how bad management can really throw off a once, you know, a leading innovator in the space. And now Intel has a lot of catching up to do. So we'll leave it to that because I think everybody is already Intel'd out. But it's it's amazing though how it's important to talk about how important management and trust in management is everything for any business you're going to invest in. Absolutely. I mean, um, this is kind of a difficult science because you're kind of judging people, judging execs who are generally smooth talkers, right? They have got to where they are because they know how to present and how to talk the talk. Uh, so it's it's not an exact science by any imagination. Uh, but you're investing a lot of money into a business and relying on these guys to do the right thing. And if you've placed the wrong bet at the wrong time, it could mean, you know, it, it could be a pretty bad, bad decision. I mean, imagine having invested like, you know, 10000 or $20,000 in Intel at, at this point and sitting <laughs> with being a bag holder, you know, uh, that would not be a pleasant place to be, right? Um, no, so no, and that's a lot of that's a lot of years of doing the the whole uh, loss wash rule. It's going to take you a while to clean that out. <laughs> it's going to take a long long time to clean that out, and maybe it might also mean permanent capital loss. Right, worst case. Um, so it's a lot of money, and how do you? Well, how do you judge these guys? I mean, there, there's 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 one aspect of it which is looking at you know the earnings calls and. Can, can you get a sense of, you know, uh, does management stick to what they have been uh, what they have been proclaiming as far as here's what our future plan is, here's how we are going to do our capital uh, capital allocation, and can you hold them to that? Um, there's another aspect of it which is do they have skin in the game? Uh, how are they being compensated by? One aspect that uh, that I've more closely been paying attention to now is the 13F proxy filing, where I can actually start seeing um, how does the board actually uh, uh, determine the performance of their executives, meaning the CEO, the CFO, and all these other guys. And what are the, uh, importantly, what are the metrics that they use to actually determine how do we judge their performance? And is it just purely based on the stock price or the market cap? Is it based on the free cash flow? Is it based on you know uh, something else, um, and you know how much of uh, insider shares uh, do they get? What what are the stock units that they get, and all that? Because it's pretty important to know that if your CEOs and your top level exec team don't think uh, as long term owners, but rather short term, you know, pump it and dump it kind of um, uh, stock investors then they're not doing a good service to you as a, as a long-term dividend growth investor. Uh, Their you know, objectives are aligned with your, uh, your objectives. And that can be a pretty serious uh, problem. It could. And, you know, especially with us, obviously, you know, we, we obviously look at share price growth because it's important. But, you know, for us, it's more heavily on that dividend growth. And if that's not in line, then there's definitely some things to definitely look at there. 
I have a, a couple questions here about the portfolio overall for yourself. Obviously, I, everybody I've had so far are on different parts of their journeys. I like to know, and this is a topic everybody's different on, and then I'll lead it to a follow-up question. For yourself, how many total holdings do you hold that you feel comfortable with? And what is currently your projected annual dividend income? So um, as far as total holdings right now, I'm in the 32 to 35-ish range. And the reason I say that is because I did sell out of a couple of positions pretty recently. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, it used to be a big deal uh, when I was pretty early in my investing where I did not want to go about about a max number. But I've uh, come to a realization that some of these businesses like J&J, 3M, even Realty Income, they go through merger acquisitions or, you know, or spinoffs. And so there's only so much that you can do in terms of maintaining the number, right? Um, sometimes the number can, can fluctuate where, oh, it's gone about 42 now or whatever, right? Do I really mm-hmm. need to sell out to decrease the number to my desired max? and incur a taxable event for that tax year? Uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, is that is that really that important, right? Is that, does that, does that matter? Um, so I'm not too uh, hand picky on as far as the total number of positions I have at any given point in my portfolio, but anything above 40, I would not be comfortable with because that's just too many businesses for me to, sit down and analyze and keep track of. It's just too much of a mental overhead, bandwidth overhead. Um, and what was your second question? Your uh, second question was? Uh, what's what's currently your projected annual dividend income? Oh yeah, Paddy. Um, mm-hmm. I am about the 3,400 uh, 3, range right now. So $3,400 uh, for any given annual year. My goal for this year, it's a lofty goal, um, is to reach $6,000. So I want to double pretty much what I was at uh, at the end of uh, 2022. Um, I think I might be a little shy of that. I might be in the 5,000-ish range, but we'll see where it goes. I kind of wanted to keep it out of my reach a little bit so that it serves as a motivation onto itself. Uh, but we'll Agreed. See. I agreed. And I like that approach. And I have the same thing with my approach. Like for me right now, I mean, obviously I'm nowhere near that level yet. We'll get there one day, but um, I have it set for, I have a two tiers for me. 200 is where my tier one. And I know I'll hit that if I just do my normal contributions, but I want to do 400 if I get a promotion at work. And then I'm really going to start doubling down and go above that. I think right now, we have to see how the market plays out. The last two days has been a dumpster fire. <laughs> if this dumpster fire continues, is this going to create these opportunities where this may help you speed up to six thousand? And I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a promise here on live. This is recorded on the internet, so it's going to be true. Since we are in Texas, so that means that we have the possibility of meeting up if we so desired. If you reach six thousand dollars <laughs> a patty, I will take you out to a beer and a lunch or a dinner, and that's a promise. Oh, you know what? If I reach my 6,000 goal, I, you know, dinner or lunch is on me, uh, Harris. <laughs> I, 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 will, I will take you out to a, 
Nice. You know, let's just involve the spouses as well. Why not, right? Because that would be pretty amazing, to be honest with you. That, that would be an incredible goal. And, you know, uh, and that would be a great conversation to have over a couple of beers and a really nice lunch. So it's on the internet now. I, I can't back out of it. So if anybody wants to call the BS radar on me, we're going we're gonna to follow up with this at the end of the year. <laughs> Oh, that's that's great, though. No, no, so, no, no. no. Yourself, it's on, man. It's on. <laughs> it's on. There we go. We're challenging each other to be getting one step closer to that financial future. Um, I do there have a go. couple questions that I actually posted here on Twitter. Um, let me okay. pull up here really quick. I know some questions. Um, one of the questions actually came from new uh, newcomer investor, which, by the way, um, he does have a podcast. Really, really smart ladder from Canada. Um, if you haven't checked them out, really, really, really smart individual, um, if I might say myself, really good conversation with him. Um, he asked um, for yourself, what is your best performing stock by dollar value and percentage? And the same question would be, what is your worst? Okay, worst is pretty easy. Intel, unfortunately. And we've talked about Intel so much. So I'm not going to. I'm not going to bore your audience. With I think. Intel I think anymore. we're going to do the world a favor by not talking about Intel anymore. Um, so worst is intel best best is kind of a close tie right now between um, lockheed martin and uh, exxon mobile actually of all the of all the stocks i did not expect exxon mobile to be in there but yeah it is did you get a lot of exxon in like uh 2020 when there was when they were on big discount that's right. When everybody in the world was hating on big oil and calling, you know, the death of the big oil industry, I looked at the numbers and I took look took back and just saw saw it objectively to see how much of our um, daily uh, livelihood is dependent on the oil industry, and the answer in pure numbers was there's a whole bunch of us that still rely on the oil industry and it's not going away anytime soon so i did the opposite so i took a contrarian stance and invested pretty big on exxon mobile and i wish i had invested in chevron as well at that same stage but i kind of took it a little easy on myself and just you know just the one holding in the big oil industry boy that contrarian play ended up working out very nicely for you (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everybody was so big on self-driving cars and how that's going to be the next big thing. And, you know, you had, um, uh, what was it, uh, Nikola and all of these other, you know, businesses that were in the news. And I was like, hang on a second, guys, self-driving cars and AI and all of that is still in its infancy as far as technology. It's not an easy uh, technology to get right. And we are still some ways away. But if you look at the existing uh, dependency on oil for things like air travel or, you know, uh, generally automobile industry and all that, we are so far away from removing that dependency. So I, I just felt like, you know, governments in general and even, you know, the news media and everything else were a little bit of... Uh, uh, living in a fool's paradise, if you will, because reality on the ground was something else. 
They're agreed. And then we have one more question here. This actually comes from David and Dynasty, um, which um, we, we actually mentioned them earlier in the episode. Uh, Dynasty actually asks, what are some of the key metrics you look for in a business when you're going to invest? So for example, are you looking at um, dividend five-year CAGR? Do you go past uh, like a 10-year CAGR? What are some of the key metrics you like to look for? I try and look at, well, we, I always look at the starting yield. I do look at the dividend CAGR. I, I prefer the five-year dividend CAGR because 10-year is, uh, you know, a lot of uh, aspects of the business can change in the 10-year time span. So it's, you know, it, it's kind of a, um, a smoking gun, if you will, um, in terms of uh, take, relying too heavily on the 10-year dividend CAGR. Uh, so I use a combination of starting dividend yield and five-year dividend CAGR. And uh, I use something called as a chowder rule, which I don't know if it's come on your uh, come up on your podcast before. Um, basically, what you do is you take the sum of your starting dividend yield and your five-year dividend CAGR, and you compare that against 12%. And if it's about 12%, then you know it's a pretty good... Um, investment investment choice, uh, it's at least a, a starting filter criteria for you to take a look at the business. And 12% can be 10% for you know, some other folks, can be you know, 8%, can be 14%, whatever, right? Whatever fits your investment horizon, time horizon. But uh, the general idea behind Chowder Rule is pretty interesting because you kind of factor in not just the starting dividend yield, but also the potential dividend growth um, and you factor both of those uh, into consideration. Um, so that's as far as dividends go, but uh, in terms of analyzing financials and, and businesses, um, I am a firm believer in looking at existing and potential future cash flows. So I look at free, free cash flow quite a lot more and uh, pay a lot more attention to that. And uh, I know folks look at um, the EPS dividend payout ratio, but I prefer looking at the free cash flow payout. And it's the same uh, same thing uh, in concept. It's just that you look at the existing dividend divided by the free cash flow per share, and you get your free cash flow payout. Uh, because if free cash flow can't be guaranteed, then, you know, your dividend payout is at, is at risk, right? So you, you kind of have to ensure free cash flow before you rely on dividends. Gotcha. No, it's agreed. And it's actually, see, for me, I'm actually starting to get a little bit better about free cash flows. I'm still learning it myself. And I always say I'm always learning something new every day. Um, and you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of things that people look for. It's always a joke I have where there's people who are like, no, the stock has to fall 30% and the company has to roll out 50 rolls of toilet paper before I, like they have all these crazy metrics, like keep it simple sometimes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, um, FinTwit can get a, can get very sensitive about things like, oh, what's the right metrics to use, um, as far as analyzing businesses and, or you shouldn't be looking at free cash flow. You should be looking at ROIC or whatnot, right? Return on invest, invested capital or any yep. such metrics. Really, it's not it's it, it's not that important, guys. <laughs> well, you, you don't have to be sensitive to 
to your metric of choice because there's no right or wrong answer uh, in in you know in, in some sense. The cl- the cliche answer: personal finance is personal. And the example I'm going to throw in here. I always get a lot of slack online that I'm invested into waste management because the people, value investors, like it's too overvalued. I'm like, I know there's a little bit of a tax on it, but wherever you go, you're going to see the green and yellow dumpster. You're going to see that green and yellow dump truck and it's everywhere. And it's such a good business. Like I'm okay paying for a, a, a solid business with, it's a monopoly, essentially. I think I forgot they they are sixty to seventy percent across the U.S. with their business model or the control of that industry, or something like that. I think you're right. I think it's uh, in the sixty to seventy percent range. Uh, well, it certainly feels like that because wherever I go, I just I see the green and green and yellow yeah. trucks, right? It's also the sexiest dividend stock. I always like to say that about waste management. <laughs> <laughs> Trash, trash is uh, is cash. Huh? What, what, what's the thing? Trash, trash, trash is cash. Trash is great, and that's always my thing with waste <laughs> management. Um, I wanted to introduce you. I always love to do this in the podcast. Here, always a side question, not relate, not investment related. For yourself, I know we've talked about you're big into photography and nature. So, give me a little bit of a brief insight. What kind of pictures do you like to take? Are you like to take pictures of like? birds or do you like to do like trees and nature scenes what's your what's your what's your your stick there with like photos it's pretty much uh everything everything of of uh, all of the above right um i mm-hmm. generally don't well some folks like fashion photography some folks like portraits you know capturing people and um my Stance is that whenever I can get some free time away from technology and social media and all that, I like to uh, have some alone time with my camera, go out on a hike or you know you know some expedition somewhere in some national park or whatnot if possible, and you know just have spend some time capturing nature. It's just. Your, your way of my way of unwinding essentially um everybody has their own way of unwinding some people like to go you know go out and have a beer um they like to go to a football game or whatnot right uh, it's just what works best for you because uh having a well-rounded life um and you know something that takes you away from your regular nine to five and generally you know allows you to kind of look at some other perspectives in life helps you kind of look at the broader things, you know, broader, broader, uh, get a broader perspective on life, I guess. Right. Agreed. Uh, Life with dividends. This was such a great conversation. Honestly, I feel like I just went to like an economics class because you have so much great insight and information and, there, I know there's so much more I can ask you that we can make a second episode one day if we ever wanted to. And one a couple of things I wanted to share here in closing thoughts. One, thank you so much for sharing this knowledge. And of course, through your blog, you share your, your bits and pieces where on my description in the show notes here, I'm going to leave a link to his um, to Life with Dividends' blog. Definitely give it a follow. Um, I actually enjoy getting those once a month uh, newsletters where you talk about your buys, your dividends, and your take on everything. To thank you for being one of the very first people on Twitter I ever interacted with. 
Um, when I threw myself out there at Twitter, I'm not going to lie. It's a little bit intimidating because I see people posting about their six-figure portfolios and their five, six-figure dividend income. And here I am starting this podcast. Like, I got a dollar this month in dividends. And you look past that and you have been nothing but supportive and a great asset to this community. So again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on this podcast, Harris. I think uh, what the message that I would like to give your listeners is that it's not the amount that you should be focusing on in terms of how much you're investing and all that. It's the journey, right? Focus on the journey. And there was a time in life where I, I you know, I, I was listening to your uh, interaction with Dividend Dynasty. He's like 23 years old, if I'm, if I remember correctly. And I wish I had life. his mindset. I exactly. wish I had his mindset at 23 years old. <laughs> exactly. I was just thinking back and thinking, what was I doing when I was at 23? And I was a dud when it came to investing and stocks and all that. I, th- investing in something was the last thing on my mind when I was 23. And I wish somebody would have come in and just, you know, hit a log on my head and told me what a dummy I was and got, got my head straight. That's the key, right? Getting into the mindset of investing and not really focusing on the amount uh, as much as the journey itself and getting on the path to financial independence is what is critical. And uh, I leave that message to your listeners because if you can take control of your life today and get started, you're well on your way um, to you know financial independence. Agreed. And again, um, I think with this is just setting up that behavior. And again, uh, Life with Dividends, thank you so much for this. And I appreciate that closing thoughts on the message. And I wish somebody would hit me with a log when I was 23 instead of spending all my money on beer, fast food, and video game systems. So I'm going to make sure I can hit somebody with a log. That's going to be my, that's going to be my, 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 my goal for this year is to literally hit somebody with a log. Uh, there just, we hopefully go. There's no, hopefully there's no assault charges, but we'll hit somebody <laughs> with a log. <laughs> no, it's just literally log. I mean, it's just I, trying to motivate people here. So, you know, yeah. Agreed. And then what closes out here, as we always like to say in this podcast, whether you're paying off debt, saving for the future, investing yourself, you will reach that goal one penny at a time and we'll see you on the next one.